Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to um, just kind of let you know you got an email this week. Uh, it may have been your second email. Uh, I hope you got an email this week with a little excerpt that says, Your questions, his answers. We were going to do a sermon series. Uh, I hope to start next week on trying to answer some of your questions about the Bible. And uh, you notice I said try to answer, and you notice I said some of your questions, because we've got some in that are going to be fun to try to wrestle with. But we do want to um, explore some of the concerns and issues, and, and I'll be sharing some of those questions with you. And uh, we'll do some messages related. Now, we're not going to be able to answer all of them. I apologize. If we don't get to yours at the end of the series and, and you really need an answer, then you can schedule the time and we'll sit down together and we'll see what we can come up with. But, uh, you know, the problem, I'll just whet your appetite. The most, the most interesting, I don't know if interesting is the right word. One of the, one of the questions I've gotten so far is does Adam and Eve have a, did, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? So, uh, theologically that is so significant. Um, but I'm going to answer that question for you. But I'm not going to give you the answer today. So I want you to be thinking about uh, what that is. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting how things work. I decided that uh, today before we get into our questions or your questions, his answers, I thought how appropriate it would be to talk about the reliability and the authority of God's Word. And, and I believe that's true. That's what we're going to look at in just a minute. But... Uh, a friend of mine sent me an email this week, uh, you know, of uh, some questions from uh, a skeptic uh, that he's working with as a family member, and so I got to weigh in on that. So God's really challenging me uh, in this area of biblical authority and biblical reliability. You know, and I just want to say to you, church, going forward, the attacks on God's Word and its reliability and validity and infallibility are going to escalate. More and more people are going to question the authority of God's Word. More and more people are going to question the reliability. More and more people are they're, they're going to be looking for places to say, yeah, but here, look, how do you explain this? And, you know, and there's going to be some things that are going to be difficult to explain. I understand that. But what I want us to be able to do is I want us to be able to, to give a logical, uh, reasonable uh, explanation for how we know God's Word is true. And Peter said we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. We should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. So I'm going to do a little exercise this morning. I just want you to just imagine with me. Uh, you don't have to close your eyes, but you can if you want to. But I want you to just imagine. Let's just suppose that you got arrested by Al-Qaeda the militant terrorist Islamic organization. Let's just, just for the sake of discussion, you got arrested and they were going to dispose of you because you're an infidel, you're, you're an unbeliever, according to their uh, works. And, but, but they decided, but you had one chance. They, were gonna, they decided they'd give you 15 minutes to convince them why God's word is true. And just imagine you had 15 minutes and you had to come up with some logical reasonable, explainable facts about how you know God's Word is true. Could you do that? 
Could you give some reasonable explanations? Could you give a defense for the hope that you have? Now, the chances are many of us are not going to be confronted with the opportunity to give a defense for the Bible or you're going to, to die. But the fact of the matter is that being able to give a defense and an understanding of the Bible is absolutely critical because our destiny, our eternal destiny depends on our understanding and belief in the authority and the infallibility and the reliability of God's Word. I mean, it, it's just based on that. If you don't believe the book, the rest of your foundation of your faith is skewed. And so it's extremely, extremely important. And even more than that, as a believer, our, our obedience to Christ depends on our ability to understand and know the Word of God. And so I want to share with you this morning some thoughts on how do we know that the Scriptures are indeed reliable. So let's read there from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read two verses and we're going to camp out on a phrase. And then we're going to go to some different places. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Let's stand together in honor of the Lord's Word as we read this morning. Paul writes to young Timothy, the young preacher boy. He says, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. You have breathed the words of Scripture. You have inspired them. They are the, literally your words, your breath. You've breathed them unto us. And therefore, they are useful and profitable for teaching for rebuking, correcting, and training so that we might be fully, fully equipped for every good work. Lord, in these days, Father, there are those who question the reliability of the Scriptures. There are those who uh, look at uh, gospel believers and with uh, disdain, and they make fun of us, and they laugh us to scorn because we would believe the book. And God, I pray that you'd give us a ready defense, uh, first for our own uh, satisfaction, but also, God, that we might be able to defend our faith and be able to give reasonable uh, explanations as to how we can know the Bible is true and accurate. So, Father, we invite you to come and meet with us this morning. I pray that you'd be, uh, your spirit would be present and that your word would be lifted up and exalted. And when it's all said and done, we'll give the glory and the honor and the praise to the Lord Jesus, because he alone is worthy. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just call your attention to a couple verses of Scripture. You may just want to write these in your margin. They are extremely, extremely important. The first one is uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Uh, you may want to, you can either look this up and underline it. You may want to mark it in your margin. But the word says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God's Word testifies that it's not uh, man-made. That's one of the big arguments that we hear is that, well, it's just a collection of a bunch of thoughts put together by mankind. 
Well, the scripture defends itself and says, no, that's not what happened. It's not from the will of man. Uh, on the contrary, men spoke and wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then if you were to go over to Psalm 119, 160, you don't need to turn there. Let me just read that verse for you. It says, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. All, the psalmist said to God, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. And as we dictated, in fact, I think I mentioned this last week. You know, the Bible says that heaven and earth is going to pass away, the ones that we have now. But not one jot or tittle of God's word is going to pass away. It is eternal. It is true. It is eternal. It speaks to that of itself. And so that is the premise from which we're going to talk this morning. That's the premise from which we're going to speak. Uh, God's word is God-breathed. It is eternal. It is true. Uh, Men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so I want to talk about how do we know that? I mean, how, how can we... What is it about the Bible? What are some things about the Bible that indicate that it really was God speaking as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit? Uh, What is it about the Bible uh, that helps us to know? And I'm going to share with you four or five characteristics and give you a little bit of evidence in these areas. Now, in and of themselves, probably not any one of these reasons you could say, well, for that reason, I know it's God's Word, maybe a couple but it's the collection. And so I want you to kind of get the big picture of how we know the Word of God's true. Because when you, when you see all these things about the Word of God, then it tells us that there's something different about it than there is about any other book, about any other writings, about anything else. And so let me share those with you. First of all, uh, just uh, if you're taking notes, first of all, the Bible is unique. The Bible is unique in a number of different ways. Uh, it's unique in its continuity. It is unique in its continuity. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, which means that is more than 40 generations uh, by more than 40 different authors. The authors were kings, prisoners, tax collectors, scholars, fishermen, shepherds, prime ministers, doctors, cupbearer to the king. I mean, you you just name it, every, not everyone, but many of people from different walks of life had a part in writing the scriptures. They're very unique in their continuity. And so it was written over these 1,500 years by more than 40 authors. By the way, it was written on three different continents, part of it in Africa, part of it in Asia, and part of it in Europe, on different parts of the continents there. In, in three different languages, primarily Hebrew, but some Aramaic, and also the New Testament in Greek. And so think about this. It's written by more than 40 authors, by more than 1,500-year period, on three different continents, in three different languages. And yet the theme of the Scripture just carries all the way through. And that theme is God's redemption of man. It begins way back in Genesis 3. We see the beginnings of of God's redemption for man when God slaughtered the animal and the animal died and God covered the sin of Adam and Eve. And we see that way back in Genesis 3. And then there is a scarlet thread of God's redemption and the blood for forgiveness all the way through the Scriptures. And so the continuity of the Bible is remarkable. And so it's unique, first of all, because simply because the continuity throughout the Scriptures. And a second reason... 
is, uh, is, is unique is because of the circulation of the Bible. Uh, because of the circulation. I, I read some time ago that on, on a, in a given year, as many as 30 to 60 million copies are sold. Now that's in a given year. That's not one year. I mean, this is a stretch for you, but imagine, imagine if I wrote a book just for fun. Let's say I wrote a book and it became a bestseller. I mean, it was one of these, you know, fictional, uh, whatever you call it. I don't know what they are, but you know, one of these things that everybody gets a hold of. And just imagine I wrote this book and it made the New York Times bestseller list. And let's just say it sold two million copies. You know, we're, for dreaming, let's dream big. Then I got a lot of money, okay? So just humor me, dream with me. But if I wrote this book and it stayed on the bestseller list and it might sell two million copies this year and it might really get some momentum and next year it might sell another million and then in a couple years. But I want to tell you something, four or five years down the road, guess what? Ain't nobody buying my book anymore. That's just the way it is. But that's not the way it is with the Scriptures. Year in and year out, and year in and year out, millions and millions and millions of copies of God's Word are purchased because it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes. Of heart. God's Word is alive, it's real, and it's true. And because it is, the circulation just goes on and on and on. Did you know the Bible has been translated into more than 1,200 languages and dialects? I didn't know there were 1,200 languages. I only know two, English and Southern. That's the only two I can speak. And the Bible's been translated into more than 1,200. And it's just, and they're still translating today. There's still people today. And so, I mean, it's the single most popular book in the world. It's been the most translated book in history. It's been the most read book in history. It's, it's been the most smuggled book in history. And when you think about people, you know, in the communist bloc nations of a few years ago and the Islamic nations now and even some of the communist places like China and South, Southeast Asia, man, people are willing to put their life on the line to smuggle copies of this book in so people can read it. I mean, the, the circulation of the Bible, it's just absolutely amazing. And we now have it more easily at our disposal. I mean, there's places in the world you can't, you can't get one. There's places in the world you can't find one. There's languages in the world that doesn't have one written for it. You and I, we have it at our disposal more easily than anybody else. I mean, you can go to, to, to any bookstore, uh, whether it's a Christian bookstore or not, it doesn't matter. You can go to any bookstore. You can buy a copy of the Bible. You can go to a Christian bookstore. And there's no telling how many. You can get the NIV study Bible and the Believer study Bible. And you can get the Woman's study Bible and the Men's study Bible and the Youth study Bible. And, and you, there's untold numbers of Bibles that we can get. But you know what? We take for granted. You and I take for granted the privilege we have. To be able to read a Bible, to own a Bible, to possess a Bible, or to go down to a store and buy a Bible. Have you ever, have you ever studied how the English Bible came about? Have you ever done any research on it? I was 
reading some stuff, listening to stuff, and it just kind of all ran together this week. But, but I thought it was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, there was the time of the Dark Ages between about 600 A.D. and about 1300 A.D. That was the period where the Roman Catholic Church was really in control, and it was called the period of the Dark Ages because the, the priests were the only ones that really had access to the Scriptures. Uh, they didn't have, nobody else had access. They didn't want the people to have access. And so in the 1300s, John Wycliffe or John Wycliffe, however you want to pronounce it, uh, come up with the first translation into the English language. But when he did so, and when he did so, all of a sudden, people that who had, who had never before been able to read the scriptures were able to do so. And they say that it may have taken as, as long as 10 months to write a Bible uh, in that day. Well, he, he was, uh, when they discovered that he was doing that, uh, he became a heretic. He was uh, branded a heretic, became an enemy of the, of the Pope and an enemy of the church. In fact, history tells us, uh, one historian said that 44 years after his death, they dug up his bones and destroyed them and scattered them across the river because there was so much animosity to this guy because he translated the Bible into English. Well, he had a disciple named John Huss who came along behind him, but he too was labeled and branded uh, a heretic. And John Huss, even though he carried on the work of Wycliffe, was burned at the stake because he wanted to provide the Bible uh, for other believers. Can you imagine being tied to a stake and burned? In fact, legend says that they, they used copies of Wycliffe's Bible uh, to burn him at the stake. And his prayer was that within a hundred years, God would raise up somebody uh, to carry on the work of the Reformation. And some hundred or so years later, Martin Luther came on the scene. And if you know anything about church history, you know that Martin Luther uh, discovered uh, the uh, that were saved by grace through faith. And he wrote his famous 95 Thesis and nailed it to the door at Wittenberg. And he too became a heretic and had to run for his life. And just a few years later, uh, a guy named William uh, Tyndale uh, had this desire that every plowboy in England would be able to have a copy of God's Word. And so he began to translate the Scriptures. And he too was branded a heretic. And he had to run for his life. Finally, they arrested him. Uh, he, had, he left England, and still they arrested him. And he spent about a year and a half uh, incarcerated. And then he was strangled and burned at the stake, just like some of his predecessors. And, uh, but his prayer was, his prayer at his, when they burned him at the stake was that God would open the eyes of the king of England and history tells us that within three years of his death, Henry VIII uh, mandated that an English Bible be made available to the common man. And so I, I just want us to think about this. Men have been willing to die. Horrible death. To preserve the word of God and to make it available people like you and me. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, we shouldn't take for granted what costs so many people their life. We ought to read it. We ought to honor it. And we ought to obey it because it's the Word of God. But a second reason I say that and I tell you that is because how many, who would be willing to die for a book they weren't absolutely convinced was the Word of God? Who'd be willing to be burned at a stake 
and not recant. My stars, most of us, honestly, most of us, we're afraid to say anything to our neighbor about the gospel because we don't want to offend them, right? We're afraid we, we're afraid to put our Bible on our desk or to say anything to anybody because we're afraid that, well, it might not be legal or they might get offended or, or somebody might ridicule us. And, and the reason we have a Bible is because men and women are willing, we're willing to die so we could have a book. And I'll tell you why they're willing to die. Because it is a living word of God. It is God breathed. And it is unique. It is unique, and one of the reasons we know uh, that God's Word is true is because of its uniqueness. And then I'll just say this uh, in terms of its uniqueness, its continuity, its circulation, but also the survival of the Bible. Man, there's no other book been more scrutinized, more criticized, more marginalized and demonized than God's Word, and yet year in and year out, I mean, people come and go. People, you know, the Beatles were going to be bigger in Jesus. John Lennon said, we're going to be bigger in Jesus. Well, John's dead, and Jesus lives on. Voltaire, the French infidel philosopher and, and, her- and unbeliever, in 1778 proclaimed that within 100 years, Christianity would be dead. And history tells us that within 50 years, they were, the, the French Bible Society owned his property, and they were printing Bibles, on his property. And Voltaire's dead, and I suppose in hell, unless he somehow repented before his death. And the Word of God lives on. It's, it's unique. Well, the reason we know the Bible's true, one of the reasons we know the Bible's true is because it's unique. Secondly, let's, not only the u- uniqueness of the Scriptures, but I want to spend just a minute talking about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Now, the Bible's not a science book. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, it's not uh, in any way, shape, or form a science book. But where it speaks to the subjects of science, it's accurate. Okay? When you look at uh, just simple things like, um, like the physical science, you know, just like the, the four corners of the earth, the directions, the Bible speaks of them. And it, you know, and it, it's interesting how it speaks of, uh, the north and south, it speaks of the east and west being unending. And we know when we look at our globe. We've, I brought a globe in here before and showed you. You know, when you go east, you never get the west. If you go west, you never get the east. Well, that's what the Bible talks about. No, it, the purpose of the Bible is not to, to, to simply tell us that, but it, I'm just saying it's accurate. I mean, the Bible is the most plausible explanation for creation. I know we live in a culture where, where evolution is... Uh, is uh, proclaimed and taught. I had a conversation with my daughter this week who's going into middle school. We talked about that. But I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, you go out tonight if it's clear and look up in the heavens and tell me, does it take more faith to believe that all that just happened? Or does it take more faith to believe that someone intelligently designed it and put it in place? I'm telling you, it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does in creation. But the Bible is the most plausible explanation. And we may get into that. I, I want to study that. We may get into that one day. But just just want you to understand that, that scientifically it's accurate from, from, from those standpoints. Uh, but in terms of astronomy, uh, the Bible is accurate. Do you remember um, Ptolemy was one of the, I think he may have been the second guy that counted the stars. But Ptolemy, uh, the great scholar of the early, uh, right after the turn of the, the millennium, Counted the stars and he came up with a thousand and twenty-six. And then Galileo came along and invented the thing called the telescope, 
And they said when he looked out there, he just was, he said, wow. Well, I read, there was an article published this week, uh, three days ago on space.com. It was also picked up by cbsnews.com. And uh, let me just read you some excerpts from it. It's talking about a, a galaxy, the faraway galaxy. It used to be the SPT-CLJ-2344-4243 galaxy. Now they call it the Phoenix Cluster. They discovered it in late 2010. It's 2.5 quadrillion times more massive than our own sun. And they said that one galaxy, just this one galaxy, which is one of many, they believe that it has as many as 3 trillion stars in that one galaxy. Okay? Now, listen to what, you know, Ptolemy found a 1,000 stars. We found who knows how many galaxies. But listen to what, and see if I can get there quickly, Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 33, 22. Do we have that on? Oh, there it is. Let's just read up there. I will make the descendants of David, my servant, the Levites who minister before me, as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Now, when Ptolemy counted the stars, they weren't countless. So to, to the average mind, that scripture probably wasn't true. But with the Hubble telescope, modern astronomy, we know that they found a new galaxy a year and a half ago that's got three trillion stars. Isn't that, that's just amazing. So the Bible's, I'm, all, all I'm saying is, scientifically, the Bible's accurate. It's not a science book, but it's accurate scientifically. We could go on, we could talk about the hydrological cycle. I mean, have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about this? How does all the water that floods and runs into the ocean go into the ocean? How does the ocean never get too full? Well, the Bible explains how it just goes back. He talks a little bit about the hydrological cycle, how it sucks it back in. I mean, I, I st- I'm telling you, and I know every time I talk about creation, I say this, but I go to the ocean and I watch them waves come in. And I'm just thinking, how does that work? Did they never go too far? They always go back because God designed it. That way. And so I'm just saying scripture, uh, scientifically, it's accurate in terms of astronomy. We could talk about the geography of the earth. We could talk about biology. But just suffice it to say, scientifically, when the Bible speaks about a scientific subject, it's accurate. Now, it doesn't talk about all the scientific subject. But when it does talk about science, it's accurate. And so we know it's unique. We know it's uh, scientifically accurate. Uh, a third area is hi- the, the historical accuracy of the Scripture. Now, for years and years, uh, the historical accuracy of the Scripture was called into question, particularly many of the things that the Bible talked about. It talked about, uh, you know, remember uh, the story of the fall of Jericho and how uh, Joshua and the Israelites were to march around it six times, six days in a row, once a day. On the last day, they marched around it six times and, or seven times, and they shouted, and remember how the scripture says that the walls fell inward and, they, and then they burned Jericho? Well, an archaeological discovery was made a number of years ago and the walls had indeed fallen inwardly. And there was evidence that it had been burned. And so that verified what the scripture said. Well, for years, in 16, 17, 1800s, uh, everybody said Moses could have not written the Pentateuch because there was no written language 
Nobody wrote any language down in the time of Moses. After all, he, that was 3,400 years ago. And then they discovered some, of all things, they discovered some documents. I think they were from Egypt. They were business transactions that were recorded uh, about 15, I think it was about 1500 B.C., proving that there was indeed written language at that time. And we can, we can kind of go on down the list about his, historical accuracy. For years they said Pontius Pilate didn't exist. I mean, there was no record of Pontius Pilate. And then they, uh, they unearthed Caesarea Philippi and they found a reference to Pontius Pilate. And then there was Belshazzar. You remember in, uh, in the book of Daniel where Daniel did the writing on the wall and Belshazzar was the king and everybody, you know, for years they thought, well, there's no Belshazzar. Uh, actually, the king at that time was Nabonidus. And then there was an archaeological discovery, and they discovered that Belshazzar was indeed a co-regent with Nabonidus, who was in fact his father. And so once again, there was just some archaeological evidence that proved the historicity of the Bible. Now understand this. Now, let me just say this. Are there still questions out there? Sure. But every time there's been archaeological evidence, it has proven that the historicity of the Bible is true. Now, the Bible's not a history book. Its purpose is not to recount all of history. Its purpose is to trace God's redemption of mankind. But when it speaks to history, it's proven to be true. So it's historically accurate. And then we'll talk about prophetic accuracy. Uh, They tell us that Jesus himself filled as many as a 100 Old Testament prophecies. And if you read Psalm 22, it describes the crucifixion in pretty gruesome detail. It talks about some of the things that happened at the crucifixion. It talked about how, uh, you, you know, the, they would uh, cast lots for his garments. That was written a thousand years before Christ. Isaiah 53, if you read the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, a remarkable description of how Jesus died, written 750 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah also predicted that Jesus would be born to the virgin. He didn't call Mary by name, but he predicted she'd be born a virgin 750 years before the event actually happened. And then uh, I think it was Micah that predicted that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And so when you, when you add all this up, in fact, I, I don't remember, let me get the guy's name. Um, let's see. Peter Stoner wrote a book. He was a, a, a scholar and he wrote a book calculating the, the statistical probability that, that eight specific prophecies regarding Jesus would be fulfilled by one man. And the, the, the probability was one in uh, 10 to the 17th power, and, uh, which um, I don't know if I've shared this with you, but he, his, his explanation was this. The guy, I think... Uh, um, but his explanation was that if you took the state of Texas and you took silver dollars and you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars uh, two foot deep, you put an X on the back of one, a black X on the back of one silver dollar, dropped it somewhere in the state, the chances of a blindfolded guy pulling that dollar out has about the same probability that these eight prophecies of Jesus could all be fulfilled by the same person. I can't wrap my hand around that. Here's what I'm here's what I'm saying though. Prophetically, numbers of Old Testament prophecies came true in Jesus Christ. 
numbered over a hundred prophecies that he was fulfilling. Now, some people would say, yeah, but Jesus, when he got ready to ride into Jerusalem, he knew the Old Testament said he had come riding in on a donkey. So he told his disciples, go get a donkey. And they said, well, you know, Jesus just fulfilled his own prophecy. He couldn't decide where he was going to be born unless he was, of course, the son of God. Right? He didn't have, I, did you decide where you were born? I didn't. So, and people make that argument. They, well, he, he didn't decide how he would die. Do you think he said now, to fulfill prophecy, nail me to a cross. Don't tie me. Oh, by the way, before I die, poke a hole in my rib with a spear to fulfill that prophecy. It's just baloney. Prophetically, the scriptures are accurate. Now, there's, there's the number of scriptures still yet to be fulfilled. I understand that. They've not all, they've not all happened yet. But man, when you look at how many of them have, prophetically, the Bible is accurate. And then we could talk about the textual credibility, and we won't even go there. Let me just say this one thing, and, and I, need to, I need to move on. Uh, when you look at old, ancient manuscripts, you know, one of the things you look at is how much manuscript evidence is available. Uh, outside of the New Testament, uh, Homer's Iliad has 643 uh, manuscripts available, far and away more uh, manuscript evidence than any other book. The New Testament, in comparison, has 24,000 copies of the manuscript. That is more than 40 times the nearest competitor that everybody acknowledges Homer's work. Everybody acknowledges Shakespeare's work. But there's much, much, much more scriptural evidence or manuscript evidence for the New Testament. So textually, the Bible's accurate. Historically, the Bible is accurate. Prophetically, it's accurate. Scientifically, it's accurate. It's more unique than any other book. Now, any one of those may not make a compelling case that, sure, the Bible is the Word of God. But when you take all that together, what that says to you and me is that we have a reliable, reliable, historical, accurate document that is what it says it is. And all those reasons are compelling reasons. Uh, for the Bible to be authoritative in our life. Let me give you the most compelling one. And that is simply this. The message of the Bible has the power to change a man and to change a woman's life. I know that's true. Because I know what it's done for me. I agree with Paul. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of of God for salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. When you know Jesus, when he's changed your life, you know that there's power in the gospel. And this word is the gospel. And it's true. And we can stand on it. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at your questions. And we're going to be looking for his answers. And we'll find some of them. Some of them we may not be able to wrap our hands around. Some of them we may not talk about, but we're going to get to the bottom of a lot of them because God's Word, you can count on it. You can trust it. It's not written by man. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they recorded for us uh, the truth of God's Word. And I'm telling you, it's living. I'm telling you, it's active. 
It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It'll judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And verse 13 of Hebrews 4 goes on to say that through God's Word, everything, every part of our life is going to be laid bare before Him. So can I just ask you this morning, has the living Word of God, has it come to bear fruit on your life? Have you accepted the message written in the book that Jesus is indeed the Christ? Have you accepted the message in the book that He is the way, not a way, but the way to salvation? Because He is the living Word. John begins his gospel saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then in verse 14 he says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of God. Have you beheld the Lord Jesus? Do you know Him today? And if you know him, do you believe his book and do you stand on it without compromise? That's what he wants for you. Let's pray together. Fathers, we're praying all over the auditorium this morning. Lord, I know this morning's message was, was more apologetic than it was evangelistic. But the fact remains your word is true. And because it's true, it is the power of God. The message of the gospel is the power of God. Uh, to salvation, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, the Gentile, that's us. It is the power of God. And Father, I know in the auditorium this morning, there's a man, a woman, maybe a couple men and women, maybe a young person who's never given their life to Jesus. And God, I pray that they'd trust him today. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And God, I would pray that if there's one here that doesn't know you today, they'd call on Jesus and be saved. Lord, they would come unto Jesus and have their life changed forever. But God, many of us here today, we're believers, and yet God, oftentimes we we don't read the scriptures, and uh, we go day or two or three, and we don't open your word, or or we may go all week, and we don't apply it to our life. God, we don't value the word, and we're we're not vocal about your word. And I just pray, Father, as we're praying all over the auditorium, Father, I pray. That your men, your women, your young people, Lord, that we'd be bold in our belief in the power of the Word of God. So God, help us today to honor you. Help us, Father, to honor your Word. Help us to stand on it, stand for it, defend it, and live it out. God, there's no greater evidence that the Bible's true than Christians living out there. No greater evidence than us living out our faith. So God, help us today to live our faith in a way that's pleasing and honorable to you. We trust you to do that, Father. We ask you to do that. Father, have your will in your way in every person's life this morning. When it's all said and done, we'll give the honor and the glory and the praise to Jesus. For it's in his name I pray. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe God's spoken to your heart. It could be that you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. God stirred your heart. Even though I've talked about the reliability of the Word, you realize that Jesus is the message of the Word. He's going to give his life to you. So if you need to make a public decision for Christ, we want to give you an opportunity. Would you stand with me? The choir's going to sing as they sing. If God's leading you uh, to come to Christ, I invite you to come.